How's everybody doing? Good morning. It's good to have you all here. I am super excited for this new series, by the way. If you're new, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors. And we just wrapped up a series called The Almighty Dollar. It was all about how we manage money according to biblical principles. And I really enjoyed that, but I think I'm going to enjoy this 10 times more. I have been looking forward to this series for a long, long time. In fact, last year, some of you may remember, we had a series called The Why Series, where we asked a lot of why questions. One of those questions was, why church? And one of those questions was, why give? The last series we just went through was the expanding of that why give message. It was, it was what I wished I could have done had I had several weeks. This is going to be the expanding of the why church message. And we're going to talk all about the church, but it might be from a, a different angle than you might expect. So I am so excited for this. I hope that you will make every effort to be here every week because I think it's going to be really, really foundational for us as a church. Let me give you some background so you kind of know where we're going with this. Many years ago, before I worked in churches or anything like that, I worked at a university. And I was sitting in my office one day, and this uh, professor would come down every now and then and talk with me. He, he was an older gentleman, very wise, uh, really, really great, godly man. I learned so much from him, but today was different. Today was the first day he came to me more or less to vent about some frustrations that he had with his church. And he said, I feel like my church has lost sight of what the church is really supposed to be all about. They're really good at the Bible knowledge thing. They're really into all of their ministry programs and all of that. But it's like they're missing the key thing that the church is really supposed to be all about. And he had been studying in, in the Bible for a long time trying to figure out what is it that we're missing? Why does this just not feel like it's what the New Testament church was supposed to be? And he summed it up this way. He said, Adam, if you strip everything else away, all this other stuff that we do, all of the externals and the visuals and everything, what the church is really all about is relationships. Now that may sound obvious to you, but I'm telling you it was a revelation to me. Because to me back then, the church was not about relationships at all. The church was about showing up on Sunday and singing some songs and listening to someone teach from the Bible and giving some money and then showing up the next week and doing it all over again. The church was about programs. The church was about learning from God, yes, and, and what he wanted us to do, but that's kind of where it ended. And honestly, I didn't love the church all that much. I led a missions ministry, and to me, that's where the real action was. Church was the place where the people went who had kind of lost their initial passion for following Jesus and introducing others to Jesus. That's what I thought of church. 
But missions, man, that's where I saw real, authentic faith taking place every day, but I couldn't stop thinking about what he told me. The church is really all about relationships. And he said, my church, I'm afraid it has grown stagnant because they've lost sight of that truth. And they're all about the programs, the externals, and the methods, and the preferences. And they've lost sight of this core truth that the church is all about relationships. Well, that sent me on a journey of discovery many years ago. And I had to go see what does the Bible say about the church. Now understand when we talk about the church, we're talking about the group of people that have said, I am going to follow and trust in Jesus. Not my own works, not my own good deeds, not my baptism, not anything else. I am going to trust in Jesus alone for my salvation, for my sins. That is the church. This is a gathering of people who make up part of the church. The building is not the church. It's the people of God who are the church. And so I went looking through scripture to find out what does the Bible say the church is really all about. And what I found was amazing to me. Let me give you a taste of it here. The Bible says that we should love each other. It says we should serve each other. We should treat each other better than we treat ourselves We should be concerned with each other and not our own selfish ambition. We should be kind and compassionate to each other. And we should live in harmony with each other, even if we come from very different backgrounds. But that's not all. We should each do our part to support the health of the body of Christ as God has gifted us. He's given each of us unique abilities to contribute to each other in the body of Christ. We should not judge each other and redirect that energy toward making sure we're not a stumbling block for each other. We should accept each other. We should teach each other. We should be united even though we will have disagreements and we should be humble, gentle, and patient, bearing with each other. But there's more. We should help carry each other's burdens. We should forgive each other. We should sing together and encourage each other in our singing. We should submit to each other. We should encourage each other and build each other up. We should keep each other accountable by encouraging each other not to sin. And we should challenge each other to be more loving and do more good works. But there's even more. We should meet together regularly. We should eat together. I really like that one. We should be careful not to slander or gossip against each other. We should not grumble or complain about each other. We should not lie to each other. We should not be conceited or envious of each other. We should be hospitable to each other, but there's even more. We should help those who are disheartened or weak. We should be open and welcoming to new believers into our community. We should be connected with each other as a part of our walk with Jesus. It is our connection with him that helps us connect with each other. We should be open and vulnerable with each other about our sins and pray for each other so that we can recover. We should warn each other when we see idleness or disruptive behavior. We should care for each other's physical needs and we should live with an understanding that we belong to each other because of Christ. And there's more, but I'm gonna leave it there because that's a whole lot of each other's When you look at the Bible and what it says about the church, what you will find over and over again is that it's always in this context of community, of being with, of relationship with each other. That's what the church is all about. And too often we have made the church about just learning Bible content or singing songs or attending events or meeting our preferences or serving our expectations. And not that all of those are necessarily bad things, but too often we have made those the main thing. So what we're going to talk about 
in this series is the core of what it means to be part of the church. It's all about relationships. It's three relationships, to be precise. The first one is our relationship with God. The first important relationship we have is our relationship with God. And then there's our relationship with each other. And then there's our relationship with the world, which is the term the Bible uses to refer to people who are not yet followers of Jesus, who are not yet part of the church. Our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with the world. If this building were to disappear tomorrow, would we stop being a church? Would we not be able to meet together anymore because we didn't have the building or would we still want to do that because we are united together and have relationships with each other and, and we're, we've bonded together in Jesus Christ? If we weren't able to sing songs in public anymore and instead we had to gather in homes and, and sing there, would that be too weird would it be weird for us to not have the instruments and the lights and everything and to have to like be in our home and sing together? Would we still do it? Or would that just be strange because it's not part of our ritual, tradition? If the political climate in this country were to change and we couldn't meet in this place publicly anymore and church services instead looked more like small groups meeting in homes and instead of the kids being in these awesome kid connection rooms below us, they would actually be in our basement, you know, playing while we studied the Bible and prayed together. Would we still do it? Would we still be a church if we didn't have all the externals? What's it really all about? This series is called Hello, My Name Is. It's about introductions. It's about relationships. And what we want to do over the next few weeks is bring our focus back to God's core goals for the church. What are we meant to be? Why do we do the things we do? Why the building and the rooms and the lights and the programs and the events and all of the stuff? Why? It all comes back to those three relationships. Our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and our relationship with the world. And when we lose sight of that purpose, when we lose sight of those relationships, what happens is we drift. We lose our, our way. We, we get into a ritual and routine. We forget what really matters. We elevate our preferences because now it's more about our preferences than about the relationship and bearing with each other. And eventually, we wind up wondering, what are we missing? What went wrong? It was so great back then. Why is it different now? It's because we lose sight of the relationships that the church is all about. So today, we're gonna talk about our relationship with God. That's our, that's our focus for today. And over the next few weeks, we're gonna talk about our relationships with each other. I wonder how many people sitting in this room right now, or maybe watching online at home, feel very, very lonely. And especially in this room, there are hundreds of people, and yet you could be incredibly lonely. Have you struggled to make connections and find friends at church? Have you had a difficult time going deep with other people and finding those people that you just click with and connect with and build relationships with? I believe that's what God wants for us. He wants us to have those kinds of relationships. But why is it so hard sometimes? Why are we so lonely in a crowd? We're going to talk about that a lot. And then we're going to spend some time talking about our relationship with the world and how that is actually impacted by the first two relationships. So as we launch into this series, I would ask that you just bow your heads with me right now and pray and ask God to teach us and bless our time together. Heavenly Father, this is your church. We are your people. We want to hear from you today. If there are areas in our lives that we need to change and grow in, would you reveal those to us, God? 
Show us where we need to be better about the relationships that you have designed into us and designed us for. Help us to learn some things today that will make us better relationally with each other and with you. Help us to grow close to you in this time. And would you use this entire series, God, to draw us close to you and to help us better understand how you want us to live relationally. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, I want to let you know as we begin this that if you want to follow along with the scripture verses we're going to talk about, you can do that at efree.org slash Bible, or you can do that in the YouVersion Bible app if you have that. We're going to bounce around to some different verses, so it will be easier for you if you want to just follow along at one of those places. They're all listed in the order that we're going to go through them. Of course, you can follow along in your own Bible as well if you want to do that. The first thing I want to talk about is why are relationships so important to us? Why are relationships so important to us? We are very relational beings in our, in our very nature. We, we love relationships. We crave relationships. Not everyone admits that. Some people try to cut themselves off from relationships. Some people distance themselves from relationships. And when that happens, it leads to some really bad things. Sometimes we hear about those things on the news. Sometimes we don't. But isolation and loneliness and a lack of friends and a lack of relationship can, can be devastating in a lot of different ways. One psychologist put it this way, imagine a condition that makes a person irritable, depressed, self-centered, and it's associated with a 26% increase in early deaths. Imagine, too, that in industrialized countries, around a third of people are affected by this condition, and one in 12 affected severely, with those numbers growing every year. Income, education, sex, and ethnicity do not protect against this condition, and it is contagious. The effects of the condition are not unique to some subset of individuals. They affect ordinary people. Such a condition exists. Loneliness. We desperately need relationships. But why is that? Why are we such relational people? Why is that such an inherent need for us? Well, it's because God designed us that way. And why did God design us that way? Because he is a relational God. He in his very nature is a relational God. Before we existed, he was a relational God. Before anyone else existed, he was a relational God. How is that possible? Because he exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we're going to have a little mini theology lesson here this morning to look at what that means We see this, first of all, when God creates the world. When he's creating the world, in Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 26, here's what he he says about uh, humans. When he's making humans, he says, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Those plurals are not an accident. God exists in three different persons that are yet one God. We're going to unpack that a little bit, but it's, it's complicated to understand. We can't fully understand it. But God exists in three different persons. We see this later on in the Bible when Jesus is talking. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Three different persons of God. And then he says, when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. That's Jesus. The Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus, the Son of God. And then he says, I will send you the advocate, the spirit of truth. He will come to you from the Father and will testify all about me. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit here. Now this is what we call the Trinity. 
Or some people call this a triunity, which is actually a better word for it. Because Trinity is three parts, and triunity is three in one. And that's what God is. They are one. And we won't go into all of the verses that demonstrate this for us here. We won't have time for that. That's not where we're going. But it's important that we understand that God has always existed as three in one, three persons. And that's not even the the best word for it. We don't have a good word for it. People have been trying different words for hundreds of years. And we just don't have a word in our languages that adequately describes how you can have three persons of God in one. It's beyond our comprehension. It's like trying to imagine a fourth dimension. Go ahead and try. Go ahead and visualize a fourth dimension for me. You can probably describe something verbally that that gives reference to a fourth dimension, but for you to visualize what a fourth dimension looks like is pretty hard. I've used this illustration before from a book called Flatland. And in Flatland, I'm not going to quote the book exactly, I'm going to just use it as an illustration here. Imagine that there was a two-dimensional world, like on the surface of a table, and there were two-dimensional beings in this world that could only see in two dimensions, right? You've got, you've got like an X dimension and a Y dimension kind of a thing. And so they can see dots and lines and they can discern shapes because of shading. So if they see a circle, it's gonna look like a line, but the edges are gonna be darker than the middle so they know that's a circle. And they can discern different shapes, triangles, squares by the shading that they have. And so you have two-dimensional beings. And imagine that this two-dimensional world was created by a three-dimensional being, a sphere, a ball. And one day, this three-dimensional sphere wants to interact with the two-dimensional world that it created. How can it do that? Well, it has to come down and and insert itself into that two-dimensional world. But when it does that, it can't be fully contained by that two-dimensional space. It's not going to work. It has to kind of pass through that two-dimensional world. Now, imagine what it's going to look like for these two-dimensional creatures to see this three-dimensional being coming into their world. Depending on when they saw it and how it was interacting there, some might say it looked like a dot as it was just entering the world. Some might say it looked like a small circle as it got more into the world. At its widest point, some might say it was a big circle. And then if it passed all the way through, it's a small circle again. And then it's a dot again. And if you saw it at different points, you would describe it in different ways because it's beyond your comprehension. You can't understand it. None of your words adequately describe what a sphere is because you've never seen three-dimensional space. In fact, if that sphere were to just hover over the surface of that plane with a two-dimensional world, it could be millimeters away from the two-dimensional beings below it, and yet they would never know it. They would never see it. It would be this close, but they would have no way to know that it's even there. Now, this is not a perfect analogy, but I think this helps us to understand the complexity of understanding a God that can't be fit into our intellectual boxes. We can't fully comprehend or understand God. This all reminds me of something that Paul wrote in Acts chapter 17, he said his purpose, God's purpose, was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. He's close, but we can't see him. He's right there, but we can't touch him. It's almost as if a three-dimensional being were hovering over the surface of a two-dimensional world. God is beyond our comprehension. We can't understand him. We can understand a two-dimensional world. We can go down a dimension. It's really hard for us to go up a dimension. And what is it like for God who exists in 
how many dimensions? We don't even know. To come and interact with us. Well, we don't have words to describe it. So the triunity or the trinity is a mystery to us. But it's a mystery that makes sense. It's a mystery that makes sense. It doesn't bother me that I can't understand that God exists in three persons and yet they're one because it shouldn't make sense to me. If I could wrap my mind around God fully, he wouldn't be that big of a God. It's beyond what I can comprehend. So I understand that I can't understand it. I understand that I can't understand it. But the result of all of that is that we know he exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and yet one God, and they are in perfect harmony with each other. They have perfect relationship with each other. And so God is an extremely relational God, and he was a relational God before you or I existed. He has always been about relationships with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And since he is inherently a relational God, he designed humans to be like him to be relational like him. So in Genesis 1.27, we read God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And we jump down one chapter and we see the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be what? Alone. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. And if you keep reading, when God eventually makes Eve, the first woman, the first words out of Adam's mouth are finally. Or some versions translate it, at last. Why? Because he was designed for relationship and he longed for relationship. And now follow this with me because I think this is just fascinating. God did not design people to only need him. God did not look at Adam and say, it's not good for him to be alone, so I'm always going to be with him. He was always going to be with him anyway. God is everywhere. God designed people to need other people. It's not a weakness. It's a strength. It's designed God intended for us to be relational beings and so he built into Adam from the very beginning this need for someone else and Eve this need for someone else. They need each other, not just God. They need each other. It's all designed that way. I know this might be hard to see for some of you. Does anyone know what this thing is? What is this? It's a drain snake. Some of you know that. You put this into the drain, you wind this thing, it, get, it gathers a clog, and you pull it out. I've had this for years. I used this um, when we first moved into our house here in St. Louis to pull a three-foot hair clog out of the shower. It was awesome. <laughs> this thing is designed for one purpose, and it fulfills that purpose quite well doesn't do much else very good. There's not a lot else you can use this for. You wouldn't want to use this really on much of anything else. But if you've got a clogged drain, this is the tool you want. It's designed for that purpose. What about this guy? Anybody know what this is? I've had this for about 10 years. I've used it three times. This is a sink strainer lock nut wrench. How many of you knew that already? Okay, I see some brave hands. 
This serves one purpose. It's designed to do one thing, but it does it really, really well. If you're trying to disassemble a sink and do some work underneath of it with the plumbing, it's really, really hard to get off that, that strainer nut that you've got to unscrew. There's not another tool I have that will do a good job of it, but this thing, it makes light work of that because it's designed for that purpose. It's the one thing it does well. I haven't figured out another use for it yet, but it does that very well. I've got one more for you. Who knows what these are? I know some of you know what these are because we just used them a week ago to move a bunch of furniture. They, these are furniture moving straps. They are designed so that two people can pick up hundreds of pounds of furniture and it feels like it's about a third of the weight. And it works really well. It does its job. That's the only thing it does. I have not found another use for this yet. In fact, all three of these things just sit around at my house for years, taking up space, doing nothing useful or productive until it comes time for that one purpose. So 99% of the time, these things are absolutely useless because they're designed to do one thing and do that one thing very well. What's my point? God designed you and me for relationships. It's our purpose. It's what he made us for. So is it any surprise that when we are not fulfilling our purpose, when we are not engaged in meaningful relationships with each other, that bad things happen as a result? Negative things happen in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, with our emotions, and we struggle and we wrestle with things because God designed us to deal with these things in relationship. From the very beginning, before the fall, this is not a weakness, this is not a bug, it's a feature. We are relational beings. God designed us this way. Adam and Eve, in the garden, put yourself there. Imagine that you are Adam, and God is walking through the garden with you. Your memory is literally a few days long. You know nothing. And God is explaining to you how the universe works. And he's showing you his living works of art, these animals and these plants. And then he goes, I want you to name them. I want you to come up with names for these things. Why? Because God couldn't come up with names for them? Because he's a relational God. He wants to include you in this process. God didn't create people to be robots or slaves or puppets. He created people to be with, to be involved. This is before the fall. From the very beginning, God's purpose was, I want to be with you and I want you to be with me and I want to include you in this process. I want to include you in my purposes. He's a relational God. But God gave them one rule. One rule that was critical to having a deeper relationship with God. One rule that without this rule it would have stayed superficial. You have to have this thing to form deep relationships. And so he gave them this one rule. You remember what it was. You can eat of any fruit, in, of any tree in the garden, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, why can't we eat that fruit, God? Trust me, you cannot eat the fruit of that tree. But what's evil? Trust me, you don't want to know. Trust me, I know what's best for you. Trust me, there will be consequences to this. Trust me. Relationships are built on trust. The only way for relationships to go deep is if there is trust. I have to trust you, you have to trust me. I have to trust that if I share something with you, you're not gonna spread that around to other people. I have to trust that you're not gonna hurt me and you have to trust that I'm not gonna hurt you. 
I have to trust that if I share something with you and say, please don't do this, there are going to be negative consequences, I have to trust that you will trust me enough to follow what I'm saying. Relationships are built on trust. You cannot have deep relationships unless there is trust. There's no better analogy I can think of here than a parent with a a toddler. Because toddlers are insatiable little balls of curiosity, right? A toddler wants to do and know and feel and touch and put things in their mouths that they should never be doing. And we as parents operate on another dimension of understanding. They have no clue what they're doing or what is good or bad for them. They have no knowledge of good or bad for them. But we, operating in a different dimension of understanding, look down on them and say, don't do this, do this, don't do this, be careful about this, don't touch that. The toddler wants to know what it's like to be on top of the stove. It's it's an interesting thing. A toddler wants to know why there are all these little holes on all the walls right at about the right height for like a keyhole to a magical door. If I just stick a metal key in there, what will that do? A toddler wants to know, what does cat taste like? And we, as responsible parents, have to set up boundaries and rules for our children and teach them to trust us. They will not always understand our rules. They will not always understand why we say, you can't do that, you can't touch that, you can't put that in your mouth, put that down. They will not always understand that. But we, who operate on a different level of understanding, have to create those boundaries for them and consequences for when they don't obey to teach them to trust us. Trust is essential for that relationship and for their safety. Relationships are built on trust. Our relationships, when we greet each other, are all about trust, maybe more than you realize. You know, when you walk up to someone and you shake their hand... What you are, if you trace that back, the history of that, what you are saying is, here is my hand, there is no weapon in it. Here is my hand, there is no weapon in it. You shake hands. When you clink glasses together, you know where that comes from? We're clinking glasses together, a little bit of my drink gets into your drink, a little bit of your drink gets into my drink, there's no poison in here. You can trust me. This is all about trust. If I take a name badge and I put it on like this and I walk around, I don't know all of you out there. Some of you are strangers to me. Some of you, this is your first Sunday here. I'm trusting you with personal information about me. But that's the start of a relationship. It's trust. Relationships are built on trust. Adam and Eve had to trust that God knew better than them what was best for them. They had to trust that when he said there would be consequences to taking that fruit, that he meant what he said. There really would be consequences. They had to trust that there were some things that were better left known only to God. You don't need to know about good and evil. Leave that to God. You don't need to know about that. And that was the big lie. That was the lie of the serpent. When he came and he talked to Eve, what did he say? You can't trust God. He lied to you. He knows that if you eat this fruit, you will become like him. You will know as much as he does. You will know what God knows. Don't trust God. The essence of the lie is this. You don't need to know and trust God. You need to know what God knows. You don't need to know and trust God. You need to know what God knows. Eve believed the lie. Adam followed Eve's lead. And trust was broken. And relationship was broken. And sin entered the human race. And for God to remain a trustworthy and just God, he had to follow through on the consequences that he said would be there.
and the perfect relationship that they enjoyed was gone. So now every single person is born with that broken relationship with God. We don't naturally trust God, we trust ourselves. We don't naturally trust what God says about things that are going to harm us and hurt us and things that are contrary to his will, those things we call sins that have consequences for us. We don't trust that. We trust ourselves. We don't trust that God says this will really be wrong. We may not even trust that there is a God. We trust ourselves. We don't want to know God in our nature. We want to know what God knows. We want to study all about this world he's created and and gain all this knowledge for ourselves. We want to know what God knows, but we don't want to trust God. But what does God really want from you and me? What are God's relationship goals for you? This is from Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. It says, this is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom, or the powerful boast in their power, or the rich boast in their riches, but those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth. You want to be proud of something God says? Be proud of the fact that you know me and you understand me, that you trust that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love. You trust in my love. You trust in my justice. You trust in my righteousness. You know me. Hosea says in chapter six, this is God speaking, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings, more than all that religious stuff you do. I want you to know me. I want you to show love. This is what I really want for you. And then this is amazing. Look at what he says next. But like Adam, you broke my covenant and betrayed my trust. You see what God wants for us is a close, personal, transparent, intimate relationship with him where we know each other as as personal friends. And isn't that amazing that the God of the universe would want to have a relationship like that with us? Let me do an exercise with you real quick. I want you to think of who is the most famous celebrity you know. Maybe someone you look up to a little bit. Uh, could be an actor, it could be a, a political figure or, or someone that you, you know, listen to their podcast or whatever it is, but a really famous person that you really, you, 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 don't, you never get within 100 feet of them, but you just think they're fantastic, okay? You got that person in mind? Imagine that you were watching an interview with them on television and you've tuned in specifically for this because they're such a famous, great person, great athlete, whatever it is, that you want to hear what they have to say. And in the middle of their interview, when they're being asked about all their accolades and all the things they've done in life and all their accomplishments, this person you are watching on TV from your living room says, you know, I don't really care about the fame or the the money or all the trophies or, or any of that stuff. I just wish I could get to know, and then they say your name. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? This is like that times a billion This is the God of the universe saying, what I really want from you is for you to know me. I want to have a relationship with you. I don't care about all that religious stuff, that tradition stuff. Not that it's bad, but that's not really what I care about. What I want is a relationship with you. Don't miss the core of what God wants from us. But if that's what God wants from us, then how do we have that kind of relationship if Adam and Eve messed it all up? 
If now we have this broken, fractured relationship with God, how can we be restored? How can we have our friendship restored with God? There's only one way. Someone has to pay the penalty. Someone has to pay for the consequence that God said would happen if we disobeyed him. The fact that we betray him, and, and we do this every day. We do things that he does not want us to do because we're not trusting in him in that moment. How can we have a restored relationship with God? Someone has to pay for that penalty. God cannot just wave off the penalty, wave off the consequence, because then he would be untrue. He would be unfaithful to his own word, what he said would happen. So someone has to pay for it so that we can then have our relationship restored with God. Romans chapter five is where we're going next. If you've got a Bible, you may want to turn there. We're going to read this. Romans chapter five, verses one through 11. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace. We have peace with God. We have relationship with God. That's a relational word, with God. Because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too. We can be happy. We can be excited. Why? Because when we run into problems and trials... We can rejoice when we run into problems and trials. We can be happy and joyful with problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. That's a really important progression that we're gonna come back to. It develops endurance. Endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. We're gonna come back there. This hope will not lead to disappointment, he says, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight, by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. This is the last verse, but it's the best one. So now, we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. The question is, how can we have a restored relationship with God if we are sinners broken off from him, cut off from him, separated rightfully for eternity? How can he get rid of the consequence that he himself created for that broken relationship, for that sinfulness that we have? How can he make a way for his creations to know and trust him again? And the answer is right here in verse eight. He says that he sent Christ Jesus, the son of God, to die for us while we were still sinners, Jesus paid our penalty. He took our place. He covered the cost for us. 
And then verse 9 says that we have been made right in God's sight because of Jesus' death on the cross. And not only that, but it says he will save us from future judgment as well because that payment was made. It is sufficient. It is all-encompassing. It is once for all. Jesus paid it all. So he says in verse 10, our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing that God would do that for us? The word that Paul uses to describe this restored friendship is katalasso, which means to reconcile. It's what happens when two friends have a falling out and then they make up and come back together. It's what happens when a married couple, a husband and wife, split up and they never want to see each other again and then they reconcile with each other. That's the word that Paul is using here to describe the restored relationship that we have with God. It's absolutely beautiful. Think about it. God could have started over But what was more beautiful than starting over was restoring a broken relationship. We are part of this grand story that God is weaving together where our race, the human race, fell away from him and he kept coming back and saying, I want to be with you. I want to have a relationship with you. And I want that so badly that I'm going to take a a, a part of the, the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, and he's going to die in your place and pay your penalty all so that my consequences can remain true and my justice can remain intact and your sin can be paid for and yet you can still be with me. That's what God did for us. It's an incredible plan. There's something else that we need to understand about our relationship with God from this passage. And in verse four, Paul says that going through difficult times strengthens our confident hope in salvation. Now, what does he mean by that? Why would God want us to go through difficult times? Why is God allowing you to go through some of the challenges you are facing right now, the problems and trials that you are experiencing? Why would God allow us to go through that? He says it's so that it's that progression we talked about of the endurance and the strength of character and the confident hope in salvation. And here's what we need to learn from this. Difficult circumstances build trust. And trust builds deep relationships. Think back to some of the most difficult things you've experienced in your life. Did anyone walk through that with you? Was there anyone who was trustworthy during that process? Anyone that you could confide in? And did your relationship deepen with them in that process? Can you now trust them with anything? Share all sorts of things with them. Your relationship has lasted a long time because you walked through a difficult circumstance together. God knows difficult circumstances build trust. Trust builds deep relationships. It's how you get friendships where you say, we can just share anything with each other because we've been through some stuff. We've experienced some difficult times. And you can see where I'm going with this. God allows us to go through difficult circumstances Not just so that it will build our endurance. Not just so that it will build our character. Those things are true. But if that's where you stop, you're missing the most important part. So that it will build our trust in him. It's that confident hope that we can have in him of our salvation. Because trust is built by difficult circumstances. And when we draw close to him in those difficult circumstances and trust in him, our relationship goes deeper together. Last week, one morning early, I got up to study for this message, actually. It was really early in the morning, and there was a really, really loud thunderstorm. Anybody remember that? Really big thunderstorm, lots of thunder and lightning, and as I was studying, all of a sudden I heard these screaming cries coming from my daughter's room, and she was scared out of her mind with the storm. 
thunder and lightning crashing all around. So I walked into her room. I sat down on her bed and I just wrapped her in my arms and something amazing happened in that moment. She stopped crying. Now the thunder did not stop. The lightning did not stop. The source of her fear was still absolutely there and just as close as it had ever been. And yet there was no more crying from her. Why? Because she was close to her father. See, even in the midst of the storm, even in the darkest times of our life, it doesn't seem so bad when we are close to our father and God allows us to go through these difficult circumstances so that it will build trust in him, so that it will deepen our relationship together. And when we understand that and we do draw close to him and we spend time with him and we talk to him and we read his word and we pray and we, and we just walk through life with him and maintain that relationship with him, then we will see difficult times not as something that just builds our endurance and character but as an opportunity for us to grow close to him. We can actually rejoice in those difficult circumstances. Be thankful for them as much as they hurt because they drive us back to that close relationship with God. This is the core of what Satan is trying to do in our lives. He wants to break our trust in God. It's not just about sin. When Satan tempted Eve in the garden, it wasn't just about getting her to eat the fruit. It was about breaking off that relationship with God, getting her to not trust in God. In fact, Eve's temptation was not about the fruit. It was about, are you going to trust what God said or are you going to trust the serpent? Adam's temptation was not about the fruit. Are you going to trust what God said or are you going to trust what Eve said? That's the temptation. And this is what Satan tries to do with us. He wants us to sin, not just so that we will sin, but because sin is evidence of not trusting in God. God has said this is wrong. We know that. And yet Satan is telling us, come on, you can go ahead and do this. It'll be fun. It's okay. It's not really going to have the consequences that God says it will. It's all about the trust. Am I going to trust what God said? Or am I going to trust what Satan is telling me? This is Satan's goal for us to erode our trust in God so that that relationship is damaged, weakened. There's distance there, even though he may be very close to us because we've lost our trust. And the difficult times, even in the storms of life, these are opportunities for us to draw close to him, understand his presence, be close to the Father, spend time with him, learn from him, and have a deep, meaningful relationship with him. Because this is what he really wants from us more than anything else we can do. Now next week, we're going to talk about relationships with each other. It's going to kind of build off of what we talked about today. We have this amazing relationship with God, but God wants us to have amazing relationships with each other. He wants us to get to know each other better. He wants us to be a true community. And the, the weird thing sometimes about being in a church that's our size is it can be hard to be part of a community when there's so many people. It sounds like a contradiction, but I know you know what I'm talking about. I know that there are days where you walk in here and you see a lot of people whose faces you recognize, but because you don't know their name, you don't talk to them. And so we're part of one community in the body of Christ here, but it doesn't always feel that way. And honestly, a big part of that is just because we don't know each other's names. So we're going to do something a little bit weird for this series. And I'm going to ask you to participate in this experiment with us. Next week when you come to church, you are going to find all over the lobby and upstairs outside the classrooms, kiosks for printing name badges like this. 
And I would encourage you to walk up to one of those kiosks, you punch in the last four digits of your phone number. If you're in our system, it'll print you out a name badge. There'll be people there to help you. And if you're not in our system, they can enter you in there so you can get a name badge. And for this whole series, my request for you is that you walk up to one of those kiosks when you get here, get yourself a name badge like this, peel it off, don't put it in some weird place, put it where people can see it. And by doing this, you are saying, I am a relational person. Created me for relationship. And I am okay with you talking to me. I know that's a step. I know that's a step. But I also know that there are people that you at times would like to talk to or maybe would like to talk with you, but the biggest barrier is you just don't know their name. So now you have no excuse. Next week, go to one of those kiosks, get yourself a name badge, and get to know each other. We're one community in the body of Christ. We need to act that way. We need to build some relationships, and we'll talk a lot more about that next week. Let's close in prayer. God, you've created us to be relational, and you are so relational, and you are so incredible, and we're so thankful that you want to have a relationship with us, God. You really are the difference in our lives. When other people don't understand how we can go through life and even face some of the difficulties we face and yet have trust and faith in you, it's all because of you and what you do for us, Lord. You have given us such an incredible gift through your son paying our penalty so that we can be made right with you and have a restored relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remove the barriers of distrust that keep us from having that intimate, close relationship and walk with you, God that we would experience that relationship in a fresh and new and meaningful way this week as we draw close to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.